This is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 15, Grail. You walk away versus green night. You are St. George and you always win the fight. A fantasy, then you come back to me. A Saddest of the angels, I won't blink. Little obsession that keeps us sane. Arthuriana, Arthuriana. Welcome and welcome back to all of our listeners, old and new. Thank you for joining us uh, as we continue to saunter through the journey that is Babylon 5, one of the best science fiction shows out there. Um, although Chip thinks we need to get on down on our knees and beg your forgiveness at this point and hope you keep <laughs> listening. And keep I watching. I look forward to getting into this because I'm I'm a little bit baffled uh, about why you are so apologetic. So, so yay we'll controversy! <laughs> I have I, I I I've I've said that uh, I always get more out of podcasts when the participants politely disagree, and I have a feeling that there will be much polite disagreement today. <laughs> but first, there Excellent. was there was unusual music at the beginning of this episode. There was. That's actually the part that I'm the most excited about. Uh, I'm, I'm more than a tiny bit biased. That uh, little clip was from a song called Arthuriana, which totally makes sense with the, uh, the grail stuff. And it is by a band from Madison, Wisconsin called Sunspot. And for those of you who don't know me from other podcasts, I'm actually from Madison and only moved to Edmonton recently. Used to be Erica and Madison back in the old podcast days. And Sunspot is made up of three of my best and oldest friends in the whole wide world. So they uh, they do um, arena rock for geeks, I think, is one of the taglines <laughs> that has been attached to them, <laughs> which they... I think is fairly, fairly fitting. They have songs about, you know, Arthuriana stuff, but also things such as video games and Dungeons and Dragons and ghosts and all kinds of good stuff. They are and... magnificent. And you should really get them to go to another galley one of these days when you're not getting married. <laughs> yeah, I should work on that. Mike has been actually Mike, the bass player and singer, a lead singer. He and I have been friends since kindergarten. We bonded on the bus on the way to the first day of kindergarten because we both watched Doctor Who. That is <laughs> that is our history. <laughs> Very nice. But we're not uh, here about Doctor Who, are we? No, but we think no. Sunspot I think Chip for... wishes we were. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. Sorry, but I'll be we... good. I'll be good. <laughs> okay, but we do thank Sunspot for allowing us to use their music. As we get into this episode, Grail. What you need to know. Babylon 5 is a space station that acts as a travel and shipping hub for its sector, along with being a center for diplomatic relations among the alien races. It is run by Earth's military, but the security forces have a court system with ombudsmen acting as judges. Like any other large population center, it has an area where poverty and crime go hand in hand, known as Down Below. In this episode, an Earthman who has devoted his life to searching for the Arthurian Holy Grail, Aldous Gajic, arrives on the station. Gajic wants to speak to the ambassadors of the major races and ask for help in his search. Delenn is upset that Sinclair does not take the quest seriously. The Mimbari consider people like Gajic to be revered as true seekers. In the meantime, a thug named Deuce leans on a lurker called Jinxo to either pay up on a debt or find him new ways to smuggle goods through the station. Deuce ups the threat by having what appears to be Ambassador Kosh mind-wipe a woman who is about to testify against him. Given the ultimatum to raise the money or turn over access codes that he doesn't have, Jinxo bungles picking Gajik's pocket and Garibaldi catches him. Gajic intervenes with the ombudsman and has Jinxo released into his custody. Sinclair and Garibaldi urge Dr. Franklin to find evidence linking the mind-wipe attacks to Deuce. 
Franklin identifies the probable cause as a Nakaline feeder, a creature found on a planet in Centauri space. As Gajic and Jinxo visit several ambassadors looking for information about the Grail, we learn Jinxo was a construction worker on the previous four Babylon stations, which were sabotaged or disappeared within hours of him leaving, hence his nickname. He is convinced that he must stay on Babylon 5, job or no job, because if he were to leave this time, tens of thousands of people would die. Deuce and his men eventually go after Jinxo and the ombudsman, but Gajik helps Jinxo escape. He runs into Sinclair, who summons the cavalry. In the ensuing battle, the security forces kill the Nakaline that was hidden inside a Vorlon encounter suit, but Gajik is fatally injured. Jinxo, now insisting on his real name, Thomas, finds the courage to leave Babylon 5 and continue Gajik's search for the Grail. The station does not go boom, though Ivanova is certain it's only a matter of time. So after we watched this um, and re- did our rewatch for the podcast and the credits started rolling, Chip literally shook his head and went, ah, and then turned to me to say how much he hates this episode. Wow. Chip, tell us some of the reasons. Oh, I, you know, I, w- I would like to defer. I would like to, st- I would like to hand it over to Erica so she can say the good things because she may help me, um, Help help keep me from being a grumpy pants right from the beginning. I'll, I'll just say for now that I don't care for it, but I will let Erica go first because this is a celebration of Babylon 5. <laughs> and I would like us to start with celebration. Very well. Okay. I mean, I got to be honest. I don't have like huge hosannas to sing about it or anything. Uh, but it's it's just a story that I sort of remember as a fond, sweet little story. It's slight. Absolutely. There's, there's not a whole lot to it. Um, I love David Warner. So from the moment that I saw him, I was very excited. And he's just he's just awesome in whatever he does. I mean, he's he strikes me as a real working actor. He will he will take a paycheck wherever. And I think there's no shame in that. And he he, he's always good. Like he's always trying. So I appreciate that. Um, Yeah, not all of the performances were that great. But I still that it didn't really bother me. Um, Like, for example, in the middle of the episode, Stephen just busted out and just said, he is terrible. I just had to say that. And I was like, who are you talking about? Because it was Sinclair and Jinxo on the screen at the same time. And I wasn't sure which one he was talking about. You know me. <laughs> um, but he's like, he's like, no, the Jinxo guy. He's like, why Aww. would they do that to David Warner? He's the best actor in this. I keep seeing their scenes together. It's just like, see, but for me, I thought his performance was not good, but Jinxo just strikes me as a sweet little dope. So his right. being terrible, it doesn't it doesn't bother me. It's like that character is just trying so hard to be a good guy, and the actor is trying so hard to give us a good performance. Maybe neither one of them succeeded all that well until the very end, but it was just like the whole story. I found it sweet. And and maybe I'm just a big sucker who likes the real schmaltzy stuff sometimes, but I was I was charmed by this story. There wasn't anything I sunk my teeth into in any way, shape, or form, but uh, I appreciated it. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think I'm going to wind up sort of in the middle. Like it, like you, Erica, I found things that I liked about the story. Uh, things uh, Sweet's a really good word uh, for some of the things that happen. Although I can also understand... Uh, frustrations with the whole concept behind, you know, somebody, you know, in in this day and age still searching for, you know, this myth of the Holy Grail, and leaving Earth, you know, to to go search in in the in the in the stars, uh, like how it would possibly wind up there. I can understand being frustrated with that. Um, But there were elements (laughs) of it that I liked. Mostly little things. I actually liked some of um, the of the Jinxo actor's performance, uh, again, because he was supposed to be this hapless, kind of helpless fellow just muddling along trying to do the right thing. I actually thought a lot of his choices fit. Um, not every time, certainly. There, there were several times I was wincing, but several times mm-hmm. I thought he kind of nailed it. And that's a lot of what I saw in this episode were a lot of the actors nailing little things. That sort of helped keep the story afloat. Uh, Delin just practically cracking the whip on Sinclair practically had me laughing at the beginning. She, her her offense at how dare he ignore this and he'd better get a move on. Um, really, I really liked that. Along with Garibaldi actually having a bit of 
sort of character development through the story. At the beginning, when um, Galjik arrives on the station and states his mission, Garibaldi just rolls his eyes. He can't even hide it. And, you know, Sinclair <laughs> Sinclair manages to stay polite, and he and he gets Garibaldi for it by making him, you know, go escort <laughs> Galjik to his next place. But then by the end, Garibaldi is, you know, he, he's rather kind about Thomas. You know, he he's respects him now. He... he He's seen the growth. He's, you know, respects Gajik too, at least for his actions, if not necessarily his quest. He's proven to be a a very good person with a lot of his actions. So, you know, things like that helped bolster the story for me. Um, Although there were places when I was just cringing, um, you know, someone needs to hit Christopher Franck. (laughs) The, the, The music during the Centauri bits was about to drive me bonkers. It was pretty silly. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Garibaldi's eye roll at the beginning, and I actually have that in my notes because I completely echoed it. Because I do mm-hmm. think that it, the sort of search for a, a complete myth is ridiculous. But I think that for me, that's kind of why the story works. It turns it into a fairy tale as opposed to an actual quest. Mm-hmm. It's not a fairy tale. It's a farce. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I hate farces. <laughs> <laughs> Here's I've got I've got several issues um, and each each of the issues sort of hits a sore point for me as it's sort of death of a thousand cuts that uh, leads me to really not liking this episode. First, the biggest the biggest problem in the episode is Tom Booker, who played Jinxo. He is. By all accounts, a nice guy. He, he's been in some movies. He's uh, currently uh, the artistic director for uh, something called uh, the Institution Theater that does improv classes and offbeat theater in Austin, Texas. That's their catchphrase. The, and in his his instructor biography, the last line says, he's a really nice guy. You should meet him. I believe that. He does strike me as a really nice guy. But I hate the performance. I hate his performance as Chinkso. That when he, when in the end he pauses and he says in this sort of treakly uh, uh, that he, that his his name is Thomas he's not Jinx. <laughs> well the, he didn't the, the, it, the repeat was unnecessary oh god yeah he yes he is he is a hapless character but if you take a hapless character and he adds to that a hapless performance and I fully back up Stephen here you pair him with David Warner who is fantastic who raises you know there's there are actors that raise um that that raise any script to a fantastic level and then jinxo anchors it right back down to mediocrity again and i hated it for david warner myself um so yeah um that 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 is one of those areas where like with a whole lot of first season episodes you know that uh that that initial casting if it wasn't a marquee actor like a david warner then yeah it it falls apart i do think it would have fallen apart for me if there was no david warner in this he is the the linchpin the keystone like he's he's the sun that it all revolves around for me i will admit that freely he he does he does a great (laughs) job with what he's got there uh funny because actually warner was the one that i was sort of he was the one who was sort of jolting me out of the story because I was like, you know, he's he's trying, but you know, <laughs> it, I kept getting reminded of you know how much treacle he had to work with, and in some cases, some of his some of the bits he had to present struck me as tilting from from sweet to to gummy and treacly and and just too much. Um, so there, so actually, it was Warner's performance here and there that was um, giving me problems because it was too good for the story. Not always. Not always. I, 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 I was the one suppressing an eye roll when he decided to stare down the Nocaline feeder and, you know, <laughs> and tell him that at that point, I'm just like, really? So. Well, that's, so. that's, that's, that, that's not Warner. That's the script. And about the script. Uh, yeah, I'm being a grump here. Um, <laughs> there, I, you know what? I will, I will agree that the script was not the best. Like, right off the bat, we get um, Deuce is, is threatening Jigsaw, and he's saying, you know, I'll give you 300 cycles. And my, in my head, I'm just like, 300 cycles? How many rels is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the script, you know the concept of the character, who, who, which character has to hold the idiot ball now? It's an idiot plot. I mean, 
for the first off, you you have the uh, shock reveal in the opening credits that it appears that Kosh is just randomly killing lurkers. And why is Kosh randomly killing lurkers? Because Deuce wants to intimidate the lurkers and make them believe that the Vorlons are working in league with him. Don't you think that other people in the station would have heard that? Oh my god, there's a Vorlon running around and he's working for Deuce. Don't you think that might have bubbled up to Garibaldi at some point? I'm just well, asking. It didn't, it didn't seem like this has been happening all that long. Like, I mean, they had had a few people who had been mind white, but it didn't strike me as a, a huge a huge string of them. So, yeah. But I see what I mean, Chip's saying. If that You would have thought that somebody induces organization yeah. would have talked I, I i can see that point and then we get the reveal midway through that uh it's a knockaline feeder and then yeah, for the record for the record steven was like he completely bought that it was uh that it was ambassador kosh at the beginning oh wow <laughs> well you know i i i might have too i probably i probably did i i, I think the first time i saw it i probably did too because we didn't know anything about it we haven't seen inside the encounter suit he might have a little flappy tentacle um that looks a lot like another tentacle that we'll see yeah. in a future episode uh but that would be a spoiler um but um but halfway through we find out that it's a knockaline feeder and from that point on, every time the encounter suit shows up, there is no drama to it because we know that we know what's inside the suit. Uh, we know that it's not Kosh, and then it's you know, and then we've got the reveal there. There are r- random instances where the thugs the thugs come across Jinxo and Aldous Gage, whose whose name seems to be Gage. pronounced differently throughout the episode. It doesn't look yeah, like it, it, it. It's spelled mm-hmm. as though it's Gaijik, but I hear Gage a lot during yeah. the episode itself. Yeah, bit of trivia. That's actually uh, the name of Mira Furlan's husband in real life. Oh. So, yeah, that's her husband's name. Um, and there's so I'm, a, and I'm, I'm sure I'll say it later on. thrilled to be attached to this episode. <laughs> I feel so grumpy. Yeah, um, and... You know, every once in a while, I guess an episode's going to hit you like that. Something else for me that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't seem to be there was a whole lot of fan service and in jokes kind of crammed into this particular episode. We've got um, a character named after um, Mira Furlan's husband. We've got, of course, the beginning scene that was actually an insert by uh, by Straczynski of the courtroom scene with the human suing the uh, very familiar looking, big eyed, big headed aliens for abducting his great great grandfather. Yeah, that was hilarious. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was absolutely hilarious. And the poor ombudsman, you know, judge such and such never gets these cases. So things like that worked. Um, I thought the end with Thomas getting onto a ship called the Mary Celeste was very funny, given that, you know, the legend of the Mary Celeste, uh, the, the ship, the sailing ship that was discovered completely empty and abandoned by another ship in the 1800s. So it's, it's synonymous with ghost ships. <laughs> um, so that um, is another thing that I thought was a clever insert. Uh, on the other hand, you've got the Centauri. Um, oh. And Londo's just over-the-top panic about the Nakaline. That didn't convince me that the Nakaline was something to be afraid of. It convinced me that Londo was just given a very bad script to act. Uh, <laughs> I, liked, I liked Londo in this. I just, it cracked me up. I I, I like a little bit of comic relief from, from time to time. And, and I, I will admit that maybe it doesn't completely fit in with his character. But, I mean, it kind of does. Because early on, he seemed much more buffoonish. And he's been mm-hmm. maybe slightly less buffoony as we've gone along. But it, it wasn't entirely out of character. Or, or it may be, may be me being influenced by the music that they chose to play with when he and Veer were going back and forth. And Veer had already done the work that Londo was hoping to extort a bribe for. Just, it, it was... I was it was so Laurel and Hardy. Yes. It, and, and, and you know, Londo's being over the top. Veer is being the, the, the same guy who was uh, messing around with the video game opposite Kodath in that one episode. <laughs> and, and just, I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. No, but, you know, things like that, the tossing in of little things. We also get a few more bits of backstory here and there. Uh, we get the first detailed description of what happened to Babylon 4 from an eyewitness. Um, so there's a little bit of backstory uh, getting filled in there. So for me, th- there were things here and there that helped. 
bits and pieces uh, tossed in to entertain the viewers, uh, things like that. Uh, occasionally, really good bits from the actors, you know, whether the script or not was was solid or weak. Um, I, again, I felt uh, Mira Furlan's performance in this one, uh, doing what she was given to do, she did really well with her comments to Sinclair, her snarkiness about another group in her own culture. I think that's the first time we've heard her be be that snarky about anything. And that was fun. I also that was another thing that I liked was just hearing a little bit more about the Minbari culture and the different uh, cast, the warrior cast and the religious cast and how they don't don't usually agree on things. And that's OK. And um, and, you know, even the uh, the Centauri thing, knowing about the the feeder that gives us just another it fills out the the picture that I have in my mind of the Centauri just a little bit more, you know, colonizing mm-hmm. days and going through losing colonies to these these terrible, weird looking beasts and that sort of thing. But I wouldn't do actually it, wouldn't have, it have been neat if that had actually been like the Zahn or something like that. You know, it it's sort of the same story. You know, the uh, they're talking about the um, uh, in Parliament of Dreams, they're talking about their celebrations over defeating the not the Zahn and right and all that stuff. And you know, it, the, the Nakaline feeder. It's sort of a repeat of that same thing where the centauri had pitched battles against uh other creatures and they really took it personally when they were dealing with uh life and death issues and they uh and you know the only good knockaline's a dead knockaline or whatever you know they they <laughs> they hold grudges really well they do mm-hmm. you know i i do have in my notes just one thing that i'm not particularly excited about in this episode and that is garibaldi And here, Garibaldi is a hard ass, emphasis on ass, because he is, I hate him. He just wants to clean out down below just because they are, you know, the the, the people who cause trouble. Like that just, I I managed to sort of ignore that side of Garibaldi a lot and still still kind of enjoy him as a character. But boy, that is the kind of outlook that just drives me up the wall. So every time it's called out this strongly, it makes me uncomfortable. There's a little bit of cognitive dissonance because in my head I think, oh yes, I like Garibaldi. You know, he's he's funny and he's he's smart and he's sharp. But then and then something he's like also this a security happens. officer. Yeah. And I have to go, yeah, but he's not just a security yeah, officer. Like I've known cops who are, yeah. are are pretty cool people and wouldn't ever say anything remotely like that and then at the end too he's he's kind of a jerk when he's teasing londo and veer about the uh, about the silence you know before the, the yeah. feeder gets you and i mean yeah. okay maybe londo deserves that um but not poor veer he hasn't even been there that long what'd he do <laughs> poor veer who gets locked out it's like let me yeah. out yeah. don't don't leave me go to your yeah. own quarters veer Going back to Garibaldi, I thought it was interesting. The the needle swings wildly um, in that scene in MedLab because he's talking about wanting to just street sweep down below. And then uh, he finds out that the victim is Miriam Running Deer. And all of, he knows. He gets all, he, all of a sudden he gets all serious and he, and he sounds sympathetic and like he's had a, 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 a he's been brought up short. And then we realize, oh, no, it's just because she was a witness. Yeah. And can we just take a moment to recognize, too, that Miriam Running Deer is kind of, you know, that's not the kind of name that I expect to find on television. So it was just a nice little bit of multiculturalism in the future, again, on Babylon 5. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Very much so. Um, Yeah, I agree with the needle swinging. As I said, you get the same kind of thing sort of towards the beginning and the end of the story, where at the beginning, Garibaldi's all eye-rolly about Gaij's quest and then um, at the end, when Thomas is departing with the body, Garibaldi is, you know, very thoughtful, respectful. You, you can actually see in his face that he's reevaluating uh, what he was thinking about them. Yeah. And then you turn around and he's teasing Wando. So, <laughs> yeah, um, we haven't talked about the Nakaline feeder itself. I think for one of the first pure CGI creatures on television, not just in Babylon 5, I thought it was... Fairly well realized. You look at it today and you see that the tentacles in CGI don't look at all like the tentacle, the practical tentacles. But hey, um, Doctor Who had the same problem with the Slitheen in 2005, so I can give it a break Mm -hmm. there. I thought it was kind of a neat creature and they did some decent directorial stuff to disguise the fact that there was only so much that they could do with it on set or um, in in, in compositing. 
Yeah, there there were times when it um when I was thinking, you know, that that they did that really really well and then there'd be a few places here and there it's like, okay, that doesn't look so good now, but as you said, one of the first times uh that they'd tried to render uh 100% uh computer image. I have a couple of other things that I sort of enjoyed. Um uh, going back to just the sweetness and charmingness of the story. The scene that that I think I liked the best was the one where and yes, it was a a David Warner scene with Jinxo. Um but uh, Aldous is explaining to Jinxo that his, you know, his name should be Lucky. And just I love yeah. I love that when any character takes something that is just sort of perceived wisdom, something that's just known and very just quickly and easily flips it on its head and you look at it from a, a totally different direction. And, and maybe this was, you know, an obvious example of that. But I don't care because I just thought it that it was it was beautiful. It was really no, nice. I, I'll, uh, I'll agree with you on that. And I actually even really like the direction in that scene, too. There's way too much. I'm going to walk down the corridor and I'm going to talk, and, and Gaij and, and Jinxo are going to talk, you know. There, there's a lot of ambling slowly through corridors that apparently weren't <laughs> long enough to uh, do anything. But in that one scene that you're talking about, they're having the conversation, and they go into Gaij's quarters, and for the first time, we have a, we have a scene that really goes, the mm-hmm. door opens in the hallway, and you see through it, into the into the quarters set, and they keep conversing as they go through the door, and then the door closes, and then closes, and then the director resets. But it's still, it's all the same set. And there were so many times and in, in shows where uh, you set up the camera on one part of the stage, and then you go through a door, and you set up on the other stage, and they don't all feel like part of the same uh, station. And I think that that's one of the first times that uh, they actually pulled it off in Babylon Five, and. As you said, in that moment, that's a very, very strong scene for David Warner. Um, it, it's it's heartfelt, and, but it's it's also underplayed. You know, I think you're mm-hmm. lucky. I think your name should be lucky. That it, it's perfectly delivered. Mm-hmm. By the way, we do have a resumption of Doctor Who connections here with um, David Warner, who I don't think he was ever in the show, but he most certainly was the Doctor in Big Finish. Mm-hmm. He was indeed. Yeah, you know, he really should be on the show at some point. I feel like he's one of those guys that, like, somebody somewhere must have a checklist. And, like, Patrick Stewart and David Warner are still unchecked. (laughs) I don't, you know, it it may be too late, uh, but I think he could have made a very credible doctor. Oh, yeah. Once upon a time. Speaking on, of good on per- screen. Anyway, go ahead. On screen, yes. Speaking of good performances, um, I I took special note of the uh, the two heavies, the two guys that jumped Jinxo. They were actually pretty good. They didn't deliver their lines <laughs> in a totally horrible way. Um, so I was I was pretty happy with with that. They they seemed like actual threatening guys and weren't all wooden. So good job casting uh, casting department for this one. But what oh, about okay. William Sanderson? I've I like William Sanderson and he's kind of always the same no matter what he's in. So I feel like anybody, you know, they knew what they were getting when they cast William Sanderson and they got William Sanderson. So I I I don't have a problem with it because I I just kind of enjoy him and I'm used to his style. If you had never seen him before, maybe that wouldn't uh, work for you as well. I don't know. I'm a bad yeah. SF fan. I wasn't thinking Blade Runner, I was thinking Newhart. Uh-uh. <laughs> And it took me a while to get past that. I had forgotten yeah. about the new heart thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. For me, it's Blade Runner all the way. So, yeah, I, I had a, a bit of trouble. I, I'm not as familiar with Sanderson either. So, um, so yeah, I was seeing more of somebody, you know, overplaying somewhat um, the, you know, petty crime boss, that sort of thing. Um, a couple of other things that uh, I had in my notes. Our son, Will, actually sat down and watched this one with us a little bit, and he was quick to spot. There were a couple of, I guess, gaffes, I guess is the best way to put it. And I don't know if it's problems with the script or problems with the directing, but uh, Will was very quick to point out when Garibaldi managed to stop uh, Jinxo having just just picked uh, uh, Gaija's pocket. And Will is just like, okay, Garibaldi can see through walls? Because Garibaldi had been around the corner when it happened. Um, Here's my hand wavium for that one. Let's okay. see if it's the if, same hand wavium I used. 
If you if you think about it in three dimensional space, so Garibaldi is walking towards the camera, toward us, and he's also actually at the same time walking toward. There's another security officer that he's walking right toward, and that security officer had a perfect view of Jinxo and what Jinxo was doing. So my thought was that that other security officer kind of like you know just motioned to Garibaldi and you know some sort of security secret handshake type thing, and and that was what tipped him off. You get an internet high five. That was my thought, too. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but Will didn't really buy it, though. <laughs> it, it's it's pretty thin, I, I'll, I'll admit. Yeah. I also was seriously questioning um, the scene where uh, Deuce is actually threatening Jinxo right there in the courtroom in front of yes. Garibaldi, in front of the ombudsman. Mm-hmm. It's like there was no other way to convey that and pass the information along seriously. And isn't it convenient that as a result... Deuce's thugs go after Jinxo and Deuce's thugs go after the ombuds all at the same time. And then it's all we get everybody all together in the in down below for the big uh, for the big finale. And uh, I'm sorry, (laughs) sorry. guys. We're grumping again, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, There there are moments. There's always a boom tomorrow. I mean, yes, you know, that's on my list, too. Yes, there there are moments scattered throughout this thing starting with the alien ad- abduction restitution thing ending with boom tomorrow but there's so much dross in between that i just can't get through it and maybe it is erica that as much as i like david warner i don't like him so much that i can forgive the rest of the episode it's not not forgive why, why am i why am i using that word um that's an <laughs> entitled word but i lord i didn't enjoy it okay uh, yeah. Have, have we got anything else that we can think of before we head through the jump gate? Well, you know, I was going to suggest a, uh, a Michael O'Hare check-in, but he really oh, didn't right. have, have a whole lot to do in this one. But, I, I you know, I have to say even the, the, the few scenes that he had, uh, maybe he did just turn a corner for me a few episodes back mm-hmm. because I have no complaints. I, he wasn't my favorite or anything. And there was he was there were moments where he was bordering on too intense, but he never crossed that line for me. So I was always OK. However, there was one problem and it wasn't actually his fault. It was totally a script thing. At the end, when Sinclair is, is seeing off the body as it leaves the station, Sinclair says he's surprised to see Delenn there. What? Why on earth would he be surprised? She's the one that made him come to see him arrive at the station in the first place. And now his his body, after dying sort of heroically, is leaving the station. I don't understand for a second why he would be surprised that Delenn would show up for that. Like, that just, that threw me out of the story so hard. I... I was almost on Chip's team for a minute there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I'm I'm trying to remember if if that line was designed to lead Dylan into some other point of dialogue, but at the moment I can't remember it doing it, so. I believe it was because yeah. she says, you know, why are you? After all, I'm not surprised to see you here. Right. So it's not okay. even a good point. It's not even a good piece of dialogue right. that he points her into. It's just a bunch of nonsense. So <laughs> I was a little angry at that. Uh, oh. What about Kosh? What about Kosh in this episode? Um, the, the, both He's fake Kosh and real Kosh. How do they come across? And I'm also curious what uh, Stephen thought of them. I liked the – I love the, the Kosh, you know, and he – I can't remember the exact line, but that Sinclair says that they're, you know, mysterious and intimidating. No, it makes people nervous that the good knowing about them. And he says, good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> So that just made me that just made me laugh. Uh, like I said, Stephen did think at first, you know, because mm-hmm. Stephen hasn't been a Kosh fan all along because he's just so mysterious and that gets on Stephen's nerves. So he's just like, I don't like this Kosh guy. And they, like I just to me or to, to him, it seemed like like the fact that he was sucking people's brains out wasn't all that much worse than than what he had already been doing. Like like Stephen didn't like that, but it didn't change his opinion too much for the worse because he already didn't like Kosh. So yeah, he's, he's not a big Kosh fan. Yeah, for me, um, you know, of course, hard to harder to remember what it was like seeing this cold. But, you know, certainly at the beginning, realizing right away that that it wasn't Kosh. Um, and then there's that, I guess, I guess you could call it a transition um, when uh, they move to the scene where the the feeder is demanding more food and the voice is immediately different. So, you know, this is the 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 banging of the clue stick on your head. By the way, guess what? This really isn't Kosh, just in case you hadn't figured it out. <laughs> um, so that was it showed progression, but it was annoying progression. 
you know, but at the end, of course, you know, Kosh gets to, you know, deliver his, you know, his why, you know, you know, that the, the two year old why, why, why? And then, you know, Sinclair gives him the answer that he's seeking. Good. Um, <laughs> and, and very Kosh. But, but before that, I'm sorry, this is another thing that just killed me. So Jinxo saw somebody supposedly get killed by Kosh. And then he's hanging out with Aldous Gaij, and they're going to visit the ambassadors. And Jinxo is shocked. They go into the alien sector. He has no idea where they're going. And he is shocked that the door opens and Kosh is there, as if they weren't going to get around to Kosh at some point, or as if he might have said, you know, Aldous... There's this one guy that I don't think you should talk to because he's <laughs> killing people down in, down below. You know, it's 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 one of I think many examples in this uh, where characters behave the way that they behave simply because it says to in the script. Yeah, and so, that, yeah. my friends, is the idiot ball at work. Yep. <laughs> so, Chip, after all this, have have you softened to it at all, or are you still just completely Mister Grumpy Face? Erica, what do you mm-hmm. think? <laughs> <laughs> you still sound pretty much grumpy. Honestly, I feel like I've been brought down a little bit. <laughs> so, oh, no, so I'm, no. I'm less less positive about it. But I wasn't super positive about it to begin with. Yeah. So it's not like it's a great loss. Well, <laughs> it, ha- it, it, it has this going for it. It doesn't damage the rest of the series. True. Okay. High praise high, indeed. High praise indeed. <laughs> yeah. Damning with faint praise, I think, is what we call that. Yes. <laughs> All right. And with that, I think we are ready to um, move through our jump gate. We thank the new viewers who have been listening along. This is your point to jump off. and um, But not before you know what your homework is. I was getting to it. <laughs> Goodness, that's two weeks in a row you've done that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> All right. Shanna, do you want to do that next to him next week or shall I? <laughs> uh, we'll flip a coin. <laughs> the mansplainer will mute now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as I was saying, uh, we thank uh, all of our people that are going through this for the first time for listening. Your assignment for next time. Again, we are still sort of off of the DVD order for a couple more episodes on the Lurker's Guide. Uh, lists for the next episode, Eyes. So make sure that you jump over to Eyes when you are watching the next episode. As always, feel free to let us know what you think about past episodes, current episodes, veterans, episodes that are coming up. We always have our spoiler-filled and spoiler-free threads available at our website, b5audioguide.com. You can also join in the conversation on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide, and we welcome your input. We would love to hear from you. And, and while you're uh, on the internet, uh, just surfing around, you may also want to check out sunspotmusic.com. If you liked the little bit of music you heard at the opening of the show, there are lots more songs available, many of them free. Thank you very much. And with that, let's go through a jump gate. And we're back to talk about any trails any vines from seeds planted that might be running through this episode although um i don't think there's all that many to talk about in this one i'm shaking my head yeah <laughs> it's, it's it's thin on the ground really thin would something that tied it into future episodes have helped balance the a plot you know I, as a person going back and re-watching I feel like maybe that that would have for me, but seeing it for the first time, I don't even know if if planting something like that would necessarily be helpful because unless you're going to resolve it, you're or or be very very artful about the way that you're teasing something, uh, you're not going to give any resolution. We do get some hints, and I don't know how subtle they are about Sinclair being a special figure that Delin admires. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, we're we're in that we're in that sort of nebulous world here, where I don't know whether JMS had actually worked out the Sinclair is Valen thing at this point. But uh, this is another one of these things, like we'll get with Naroon a few episodes down the line when Naroon says, "You talk like a Mimbari." We are getting the Sinclair as the sort of spiritual figure, the sort of in line with the religious cast of the Mimbari uh, kind of thing. So. There's some hints there. 
Yeah. Although there's some clunkers, too. We've actually got a bit of, I don't know if this is just JMS changing things up later on as he continued to write or just a mistake on uh, the part of the writer, but the mention of the two Mimbari casts instead of three uh, was kind of jarring on the rewatch because, you know, they mm-hmm. talk about the warrior cast and the religious cast. And even Will was like, wait a minute, isn't there a worker cast too? And we we're like, yeah, there is. Um, although the the philosophy contrast in that scene of what would happen if the two sides agreed was really good. Um, that still, you know, for veterans, that was something that might have jarred them out of the story. Yeah, and it did. It did. That mm-hmm. was one of the things I put in my notes as well. And I, I mean, I, I feel like that the way that it was written, I can't remember if there was any exclusionary language used. I don't know if they said we only have two casts. So I mean, it, it, if if they didn't, then I suppose you could play it off to be that, you know, sort of the, the, the religious cast and the warrior cast are the, the two casts that really sort of, you know, keep things moving. And, and the warrior, or the worker cast is either just, you know, just a p- kind of plodding along and doing their thing and not paying attention to the nonsense on either side of them, or that they are just sort of looked really down upon. Um, I think we by get the that. Other and, casts. and that sort of lines up with some of the things that happen later with, yeah. um, with, with, uh, with the uh, schism in the Mabari. That's a good point. So, yeah, I'll, I, I accept your hand wavium as the, mm. um, you know, there are two casts, not there are exclusively two casts, but we have these two casts that really don't get along. Yeah, it's kind of like how at my last job, you know, they would talk about the programmers and, well, mostly just the programmers and the technical writers never got mentioned at all. <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter in the least. Oh, that was two jobs ago. Sorry, everybody, my last job. <laughs> Those people were great. <laughs> okay. One thing that I did appreciate more this time around, the, the conversation again, going back to Sinclair explaining to Kosh what has happened and um, Kosh asking why and, you know, why do they find us fearful you know, or, or why did... Why was this so upsetting? And Sinclair says, you know, well, people don't really know what's in there. They don't, we don't know you. And Kosh is good. Just sort of sent chills up my spine this time because we are going to find out later on that, you know, when we have the Shadows and the Vorlons and neither one of them is really the good guy after all. Yeah. Although Kosh is a good guy among the Vorlons and you could see this good in the same vein as... Kosh later on telling Sheridan that he's he's actually training Sheridan to fight legends. And then Sheridan says later on, you're a legend too. And, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I, I see that, I, I see a couple of sides to Kosh's, you know, good there. You know, yes, I'm creepy and the Vorlons are creepy. And also, yes, and I want you to know that we are creepy and I want you to think of us that way and be wary of us because some of my friends aren't always going to be on your side. Speaking of the Warlons, uh, that was one of my thoughts. Remember I said I, I, I rolled right along with Garibaldi at the beginning when we found out that he's searching for the Holy Grail. And uh, then I kind of stopped and thought about it. I probably would have rolled my eyes at somebody who said that they were seeking angels or something like that. And as we know, <laughs> the Warlons <laughs> messing with our history. So who knows? Maybe there was a Holy Grail. Maybe the fact that this this myth, this mystery has hung on so long. I mean, there's still a ton, even now, a ton of media written and created surrounding it. Maybe it was a real thing that the Vorlons were responsible for. And and maybe they're even making us still be interested in it for some reason that they never get a chance to do because we kick them the hell out of our galaxy. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it was even an artifact that subtly rewrote human DNA so that hundreds of years in the future, mm. telepaths would begin to emerge. There you go. Hey, hey, <laughs> there you go. Everybody who drank from it. <laughs> there you go. Um, speaking of uh, Arthuriana, um, interestingly enough, we get um, another episode in season two. Is that, or three? I, season three. I think it's the one that um, Erica confused with yep, this one. I because totally it was did. the first. Yeah. So we get a late delivery from Avalon, which is also chock full of Arthurian symbolism um, as um, the pilot whose uh, shot started the Earth Mimbari War um, has retreated into this fantasy to try and re- uh, return the um, sword Excalibur to the Lady of the Lake to find Delin and apologize. Um, and it's interesting because that's a gorgeous story. 
uh, I think that when we get to that one, um, that's one of the ones that has some really enjoyable things going on for it, even though it comes I, from the same source material. I agree. I, I like both of these stories, and I, I think I like the other one a little bit better. But one thing that I find as far as – because remember I said Michael York and, and David Warner are sort of the the things that, that I really like about those stories. I find that Michael York's performance, the, just the fact that he is delusional, he's very stagey and sort of over the top. And it fits just fine. I don't have a problem with it. But I think when it just comes down to the performance itself, I prefer the slightly more underplayed earnestness of David Warner in, in this one. I I like his character. It's it's sadder. I mean, it, which is a weird thing to say because Michael York's character is very sad. But this is just sort of a, a wistful, delicate sadness that that hits me in the heart, and and I I, I like it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm back up on this story. Woo-hoo. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. I I, I I I I will accept your point because uh, that bit when he's talking about his family and his old job and how the numbers didn't mm-hmm. line up anymore and things like that. Mm-hmm. That was really well done. You know, I almost want to see it be the geekiest, most obscure, most useless video ever. But, you know, those epic rap battles of history videos? I'd love to see one between Michael York versus David Warner. (laughs) Oh, oh, that would warm the cockles of my fangirl heart. (laughs) Oh, so as we've been talking, something else that occurred to me is... With the backstory of what happened to Babylon 4, we have the first hint of what we're going to be seeing um, in, is it War Without End or which one is it that is the first first Babylon Squared tells us more about it, but War Without End, we actually see it happen. Babylon Squared and then War Without End that uh, complete that storyline. Um, so we get the first taste of that there. Yeah. Although I, you know, in in the fullness of time, you know, you look at War Without End and you wonder where Jinxo would have been, you know, when he, when he would have been. Yeah, well, they, they, they were evacuating the... He, I don't remember. He was... He, well, his story is that he was part of the last construction workers group. So they, they just started leaving... Well, but, Major Krantz yeah, and all the others were on there starting the... Starting the station up. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it sort of fits, although it seems like once we get into the fullness of uh, War Without End, yeah, it does seem like they're, that the time doesn't fit. Yeah. One other, one other thing that I'll mention, and l- listen to this, Erica, I'm defending something I hated. Um, <laughs> um, I do like that... The episode immediately after Signs and Portents, when we've seen Londo sort of at his nastiest, and it's sort of as longtime viewers of the show, we know where this is going, and we know what's in Londo's poor black heart, but we don't immediately leap into that, and everything's better for Londo, he's found the eye, everything, you know, he's, he's saved his career, we're back to normal, so he's back to sort of the buffoonish stuff that was going on earlier in the season. So I actually think as cringeworthy as it was with the music and all that other good stuff, I think it is a good thing that our Londo, the Londo that we knew um, is The Londo still actually there. swiping a, swiping someone else's drink and pouring it into his cup to get an extra free <laughs> drink. That's, yeah. yeah. And I think leaving, I think leaving Sinclair with a bill, if I'm not mistaken. No, actually, it was the other way around. Londo was so scared, he left his right. credit card behind. Oh, okay. Yes, and Sinclair yeah, so wanted was, to get it to him. Yeah. Yep, he was paying the, uh, you know, he was paying his, his win, or not winning, his, his losses. losses. Yeah. And uh, as soon as Sinclair walked up, he kind of forgot about it. And then he got so scared yeah. that he just scampered off. And Sinclair was like, dude, you forgot your, yeah. wow. So I think that, you know, as much as anything might have convinced Sinclair that this is a serious threat. Yeah, may- mm-hmm. Maybe. It's it's still way too goofy for my taste. But I do like the fact that we're we're, we're not immediately leaping into future genocidal Londo. Right. Um, And one thing, I don't know if this would have fit better in pre-spoiler or not, but something that actually made me stop and think was, um, and of course, time constraints, all all the other usual practical considerations, but I was trying to figure out why Aldous didn't go to the Narn as the the other major race of the four ambassadors. I never even thought of that. Yeah, because I would have been curious to to see Jakar's reaction to, you know, Jakar does have something of a spiritual bent to him. 
I would have liked to have seen that conversation. I would have liked to have seen how he would have treated the request, um, you know, how he would, how they would have talked. That That's something that I kind of wish we'd seen now. Um, you know what, though? I, I am glad that we didn't because I think if he would have just tried to, you know, make some money off of it somehow, it would have been disappointing. But I think mm-hmm. if he would have played to his spiritual side and taken it more seriously, it might have been showing our hand a little mm-hmm. bit too much too early. Yeah. Uh, maybe that, it's, maybe we don't want to tease that too much. Not only yeah. that, but it would have detracted from the great interplay between Jakar and Michael York's character in Late Delivery from Avalon because it would have felt like mm-hmm. you were doing it all over again. That's a good point, too. Yeah. Yeah, I hand-waved it with the idea that before the Centauri arrived, the Narn, the impression of the Narn is that they were, they were an agrarian society. They were not spacefaring yet. It was after the Centauri came, invaded, and brought their technology, and that and the Narn fought back and pretty much just stole everything that the Centauri left behind when they got rid of them, so that there would not be a reason to ask the Narn, because they, the impression is that they wouldn't have had much opportunity to um, to interconnect with other races and come across it. But yeah, those are good points, too. Hand wavy them accepted. <laughs> Boy, there's probably a pretty good breeze now with all the hand waving we've been doing this, <laughs> this episode. <laughs> oh, can we think of anything else that we need to flap our hands at? <laughs> No, I think my wrists are tired. I'm good. <laughs> I'm wafting the episode away a little bit. <laughs> oh, shit. I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize for sorry. disappointing it's, you. You know, it is okay. I, I, I don't like it when people get upset at people for not liking things. You know, being, you know, as long as you're not being mean and you're still being polite, I'm, I'm okay with people being grumpy about episodes. It happens to me sometimes. Um, it's just, just not for this one. Well, as our once and hopefully future contributor Andy Anotko uh, said on Twitter um, uh, recently as we record this, the answer to I don't like or I like something is always you are correct. Mm-hmm. You're, right. you're, you're, there is no arguing a person's personal taste or personal preferences in, a, in an episode of Babylon 5, Doctor Who, or anything else in the world. It's here, here. when you make the leap from I don't like this to this sucks. That's when you've got a much higher bar when it comes to art criticism. But it also that's also when you come really close to really pissing off somebody who loves what they love and shouldn't have to apologize yep. for it. Yeah, so exactly. I hope that I hope that I have clearly communicated All hail that I two, Doctor hate Who. Grail, not that Grail <laughs> sucks. <laughs> okay, and on that note, uh, we will wrap this up. We thank everyone who continued to listen as they watched and rewatched uh, Babylon Five with us. Uh, again, we will see you in two weeks with the episode Eyes. Uh, Again, come see us on our website, uh, b5audioguide.com. Tell us in the comment threads, spoiler and spoiler-free, what sorts of things, insights you have. Um, Come look us up on Twitter and Tumblr, b5audioguide. And until next time, this is Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica and Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. 